Well, some of you might be disappointed that there's not a kid preaching this morning. Um, we're working on it. We're working on it. But um, kids, we are glad that you are in the service with us. And um, hopefully most of you received um, basically customized sermon note sheets that Miss Megan had displayed in the back. If you are K through fifth grade and don't have one, feel free to go to the back and grab one uh, that will help you kind of follow along uh, in this sermon. And would um, all of us turn our Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, it's a page 842 in a blue pew Bible. So in 2009, a man named Simon Sinek, he, he did a TED Talk. I'm sure many of you have seen it. It still remains one of the most viewed and viral TED Talks on the internet today, 18 minutes long, and it was called Start With Why, W-H-Y, Start With Why. And, and he set out to understand what's behind the fact that some people and companies and brands are far more effective in doing what they do than others who do the exact same thing. So his prime example throughout his talk was, why is Apple, as a computer company, so much more effective than Dell? who's also a computer company. And so as he studied it, he, he really kind of did a breakthrough and kind of see and show that while they do the same things, they both sell computers, they think the exact opposite way. Because every company, organization, person has three categories. What they do, how they do it, and then why they do it. What, how, why. And, and most um, think in that exa exact same order. What do I need to do? How do I need to do it? And, and, and then why? And he said, but often they'll never clearly explain why if they try to explain it at all. They're just all about the what and all about the how. On the other hand, effective people, effective companies and leaders and brands, they do the exact same things but in reverse order. So to give you a visual of kind of what he put on there, just a graphic on the screen, he says you start with why. Why do you do what you do? And then you roll out to how are we going to do it? And then finally, what are we going to do to make it happen? And he kind of came through this kind of revolutionary concept, simple in thought, but it changed everything. And, and it went viral because that concept can be like applied to literally anything. So let me just show you an example thinking through one way you could apply this. So um, a question to the kids in the room. Or to adults to remember back when you, had, when, when you were kids, did your parents tell you to make your bed in the morning? Were, were your mom and dad big on having you make your bed when you woke up? Well, there's two ways for parents to communicate this. The first is to start in the way of what, how, why. So tell them what they need to do. Make your bed in the morning. And then how, right? You, you, you got to tuck it in like this on this sheet. You have to even out the crease, make sure it looks nice, put the pillows up. And, 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 but what happens is often a parent might never tell their kid why they want to make their bed in the morning. So I, I know what you want me to do. I know how you want me to do it, but why? Very rarely explained. So, or applying this concept, you start with Why? I want you to learn responsibility. I want you to take ownership of your life and your actions. I want to start your day with accomplishment and confidence. Okay, how do we do that? 
You, you take care of your things. You, you learn discipline and you take pride in your work. Oh, okay, what then should we do? Make your bed in the morning. You want them to do the same thing, but when you start with why, it changes everything. Because when you start with why, it inspires and it motivates us and it leads us to want to know the how. And then finally leads us to, to finally do what we need to do to make that happen. We're in the midst of a sermon series preaching through the gospel of Mark. And I, I, I open with talking about Simon Sinek and a, and a TED talk because I think this concept could also be applied to the way the gospel writers present Jesus. And then our response, right? There, there's two ways you could view his person and his work on earth. You, you could start with what he did. Jesus came and he caused a major stir in the region. And, and he was causing people to follow him and be amazed by him and love him. And some people even hate him. And you could say, how did he do that? He said, miracles, right? He just, he just did a lot of miracles, a lot of healings, uh, authoritative teaching. Or you could start with why. Why does Mark write about Jesus' life? Why? That's the question in which we want to answer this morning as we continue our series going through this gospel. We are in chapter 6, and we're going to finish chapter 6 this morning. And we're starting up to, uh, we're starting at verse 45. It'll be in the top left corner of page 842 if you're following in the Pew Bible. We're going to start just by reading the first two verses. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up the mountain to pray. So the passage starts almost like in a mid-story, right? Immediately. So, so what happened just before this? If you weren't here with us last week, we, we talked about uh, the, uh, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, Right? unbelievable miracle, multiplying bread to feed thousands. Everyone ate and was satisfied. The disciples had 12 baskets left over, one for each of them. And then immediately gets his disciples, gets them into a boat, and sends them off. Right? The word there means like literally forced. Physically took his disciples, forced them into a boat, and sent them off. And, and Mark doesn't tell us why there was this sense of or like a sense of needing to do this really quickly, urgency. But we know the reason why from the parallel account in John's gospel. Do you remember what John said happened after the feeding of the 5,000? Listen to this, John 6, 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. Did you hear that? The crowd was so amazed at this miracle of him multiplying the bread that they were ready to make him king right there. Like mob rule. They were going to use force not to hurt him but to crown him. Do you see the irony all through that? Oh, Jesus is going to be king but not the king they were expecting. He's not come to take over a physical kingdom, but rather to rule over a spiritual kingdom, and the way he was going to do it was not being crowned with a crown of diamonds, but rather with a crown of thorns. 
And you can see this contrast that the, 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 the crowds wanting to make him king are the same ones who will be chanting crucify him down the road. So Jesus, like this is getting out of hand, right? It's hysteria. And so he's perceiving that this is not going down a good path. They are freaking out at this miracle they just saw. And so he quick forces the disciples into a boat, sends them off, and then slips up a mountain to pray. To have personal, one-on-one communion with his father. This is the second time we've read in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus purposefully goes away to pray. In total, he'll just tell us three times. Once at the beginning, right before he chose his disciples. Second, here in the middle of his ministry. And then a final time near the end. So Mark puts these really critical moments to let you know that Jesus went away to pray by himself. It kind of cues you into the fact that this was a really important part of his ministry. Surely he's praying for himself to be kept strong. He's praying for the crowds who have heard his teaching but maybe don't really get it yet and and just praying that they would respond. And and finally, he's praying for his disciples. These people, these followers who, who again, didn't really get everything, but they were going to be the ones that were going to carry this message forward when he was done. So just praying for them. And there is the setup. There is the setup for what I think is the most powerful and mighty miracle we have seen up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. Again, we're going to read a little bit out of time. Let's go Mark 6, 47 through the first half of 48. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. First point, three points in our outline this morning. First point, Jesus sees. Jesus sees. Picture yourself in this scene right now. It's nighttime. Jesus is on the mountain, and he looks out and sees his disciples struggling against the wind. And a reminder, this is not a gentle, light breeze. All right, if I was having to man the sails of a boat, all it would take would be a light breeze for me to capsize. But these are experienced boatmen, several of which make their living on the Sea of Galilee. And now they are caught up in a great windstorm. If you were with us a couple of months ago, this looks familiar because we saw a similar scene in Mark chapter 4 when they were sailing and a great windstorm arose. And we, we talked about how the Sea of Galilee sits in a valley. And it's surrounded by several mountain ranges. So you have warm air coming from the water, colliding with cold air coming off the mountains. And what happens are these suddenly forming thunderstorms. It still happens in the Sea of Galilee today. And yet, it's not rain that is an issue for a boat. It's the wind, right? Because when the wind picks up, the waves get larger, and it's the water from the waves that are the most dangerous. Okay, I've never been in a boat when a storm came, but I've seen enough movies. (laughs) And I just resolved in my life, never need to be a boat where I can't see land. I just never need to be more like 100 yards away. It looks terrifying. But, but here's what I want us to notice. The miracle and power of Jesus begins here. Before he even takes step on the water, think about this. It's the middle of the night. In a storm, 
There's no lighthouses in the first century casting light over the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is on land. This boat has been sailing for hours, thrown every rich way, getting pushed the opposite direction from where Jesus told them to go, miles away from Capernaum. In Matthew's account, we're told the boat is in the middle of the lake, miles from shore. And did you see what Mark said? Jesus sees them. The miracle starts here. He saw their struggle. He saw them. Just like last week, Mark told us that when he came upon shore and saw the crowds, he saw the crowd and had compassion. And now in the midst of a storm, Jesus sees them. And there's a word for us here. That Jesus sees. And he knows he isn't removed. He didn't send them off and just be done with them. He's not kicking back and missing their struggle. He's not a negligent savior. He sees. This alone shows Jesus to have no equal. There is none like him. Our God is a God who sees his people at all times, never takes his eyes off of us, never forgets us, never neglects. I want you to think about the person or people you love most in this world. Literally, get a picture of them in your mind. Maybe you're sitting next to them. People in the world that you would do anything at any moment to protect, to save, to even die for. Like, bar none. Like, it, it takes no struggle at all. I will die for this person. Put that person in your mind. Isn't it difficult now to acknowledge that for the majority of your life and your days, you probably don't see them or even know what's happening to them. Think about this. If you have that person in your mind, what percentage of a 24-hour day are they physically in your line of sight? 5%? 15% of your day that you're awake? Maybe... If you're um, home with children all day long, maybe 50% at most when you take into account how much they sleep, that they are physically in your line of sight, that you could do something at any moment, that you see them. It's hard to acknowledge that we have far less control over the people we love than we think we do. Because we can only help people when we see something is wrong. And the majority of our days, we are powerless to save or help them even the people we love most in this world. Because we're limited. But God sees all his people at all times. Jesus looks out across a lake where there's a storm in the middle of the night and he sees them. There's no struggle. There's no trial. There's no season of your life where God's eyes are not on you. He sees and he knows. Okay, let's keep going. Finish verse 48 into verse 50. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. First, we, Jesus sees. 
Second, Jesus walks. Jesus walks. He goes from seeing what no one else could see to doing what no one else could do. He walks on water. It's a well-known miracle if you've been around church. And it's the only thing, seemingly, that could have just one-upped what he just did last week. Feeding thousands of people with some bread and fish. The only thing that would make that look small is walking on water for miles. <laughs> and it's the fourth watch of the night, which is, was known to be throughout the Roman Empire to be the period just before sunrise. Between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And he walks across the Sea of Galilee. And did you notice there's a phrase in there that gives a lot of people some trouble? Mark says, he meant to pass by them. What does that mean? Was his plan to like sneak past the boat and then come back behind Peter and be like, gotcha! <laughs> Possible, I'm going no, all right? I'm just saying probably not. So what was it? Why would he mean to pass by them? He, he's, he's walking to them. Why, why pass by? The answer is rooted in the Old Testament. Jesus is trying to convey something to his Jewish disciples who knew their scriptures well, that he is no mere mortal. He is divine. If you have your Bibles, let me turn, turn to Exodus chapter 33. And as we're turning there, uh, a side note um, to all of us, but especially to the kids in the room. Listen to me. My hope for you is that through your ministry here in kids' worship, is that you would grow in your love of the Bible. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and to see how things connect. Do not ever let anybody tell you that this book is not worth learning about. Don't let anyone tell you that's not worth reading and hearing and, 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 and just knowing about. The more we can know, to always want more, always dig deeper. This is a treasure trove for your life. Your children's director loves Jesus, and your children's director loves her Bible. And her goal is to open this up every single week and show you Jesus. The more you know this book, the more you will love him Read it, engulf in it, depend upon it. It's all right here, I promise. Exodus chapter 33. I want to try and figure out what's it mean that he meant to pass by them. Listen to this. This is Moses having a dialogue with God. I'm going to read verses 18 and then 20 to 23. You can follow on the screen as well. Moses said, please show me your glory. But he said, God speaking, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses was looking for assurance. He wanted to know that God's presence would be with the nation of Israel now that they were freed from Egypt. And, and, and so God graciously passes him by. Why? To show him his glory. 
But that's not all. Next stop, Bible story drill here, Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. Job is a man who was righteous before God, and yet he was suffering mightily. He, he lost it all, and, and so he spends this whole book wrestling through this idea that he is suffering, like really suffering, and it's not because of his own sin. Trying to reconcile these two things together, and, but for reasons unknown and the sovereign will of God, he is suffering. And so we get to Job 9, and he's starting to just recount all who God is in the depths of his suffering. Just some powerful verses, and I want to pick it up in verse 6. I'm actually going to start in verse 5 and go through 11. He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens, listen to this, and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear in Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Verse 11, behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Jesus means to pass by his disciples for assurance. Not so they wouldn't see him, but rather so they would. This is what these Old Testament references are pointing to, that, that Moses and Job sensed that God passed them by, but, but they couldn't see him. But now, in Christ, the visible image of the invisible God has come. And in the storm, they see the God-man walking on water past them. Only God can walk on water. And Jesus is seeking to show them beyond a question of the doubt, this is who he is. If Jesus was just a peer of theirs who was pretty impressive, they would have reason to be terrified because, listen, men don't walk on water. But if Jesus is God, in all of his glory, they can trust in him. Jesus walks. His disciples, man, how much are we like them? They're just still not getting it. They thought it was a ghost. And now they're even more terrified because now, I mean, not only is there a storm, but now we got ghosts. This is great. Bad to worse. Let's read what's next, verses 50 to 52. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Third point, Jesus talks. Jesus sees Jesus walks, and Jesus talks. And these three verses are the most important words in the entire passage. He speaks to them in their terror. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. It's a simple truth. Do you notice that? Jesus doesn't need elaborate explanations. 
He doesn't give them a three-point sermon right here. No wordy monologue. He comes to where they are and he says, it's me. Don't be afraid. I'm here. It's okay. It's me. Take heart. It is simple truth that we need in our most desperate moments of fear. We need a simple reminder of promises that we cling to when our feet are flailing, when people are suffering, when we're in a season of chaos and, and struggle. You know what people do not want in those situations? Wordy explanations. Significant dialogue, conversation. You know what they want just in that moment? Reassurance that it's going to be okay. So it's Mother's Day. Do you remember when you were a child, or maybe when you have, if you have children now, when a child is especially afraid in a given moment? Maybe a bad dream and a child wakes up in terror, or, or a child falls and gets hurt and is scared. What does a mother do in that moment? She runs to him or her wraps her arms around and just says, it's okay, over and over again. Mommy is here. Mommy is here. Don't be afraid. It's okay. Mommy is here. I got you. You know why that's all she says? Because that's the only thing the child wants to hear in that moment. They don't want to hear an explanation at what a dream is. Listen, dreams are these things where you have this REM cycle and your brain's still kind of awake when you know you're sleeping and sometimes dreams get scary. It might be something you saw. They want none of that. That will not help them. All they need is, I'm right here. Don't be afraid. I got you and I'm not going anywhere. Maybe down the road explanations will be helpful, but not now. Now they need assurance that they're in the arms of someone who loves them and will not leave them. That's what Jesus is doing here. I'm here. Take heart. Don't be afraid. It's the simple truth we cling to most when we're flailing out of control in the midst of our storms in life. But that's not all. This is where this just passage explodes for me. You know what the literal translation of it is I is? If that was literally translated, it would say, I am. Take heart. I am. Just as Jesus walks like God, now he talks like God. Harkens us back to Exodus chapter 3, one of my favorite dialogues in the Bible. God has approached Moses at the burning bush, and he has chosen Moses to, and sovereignly appointed him to be the one who's going to go into Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let God's people go. And Moses, love Moses in this spot, right? He's reluctant, and he's pessimistic, and he's a little confused. And he, he tries to get out of it. God's not letting him get out of it. And finally he goes, okay, okay. Pharaoh wants to know your name. He's going to want to know your name. I know he's going to ask me, tell me which God are you. I got to tell him your name. And God says to Moses in Exodus three fourteen, one of my top five verses in the Bible. He says, I am who I am. Tell him this. I am sent me to you. 
Tell them, I am sent you. I'm the one who is. I don't have a name. I am not one God amongst many. I am God. Tell them, I am sent you. Jesus comes to his disciples in the boat and says, take heart, fellas. I am. He's not just an impressive guy. He's not just skilled and powerful and does some cool things. Jesus is God. And that is the core of everything. That simple truth, when understood, changes everything. Jesus is God. The disciples were just open jaw, shock in awe, astounded. And Mark still tells us, they don't get it. There's some weird encouragement here when we see how hard-hearted the disciples are. Like, that's me. That's me. All right? Like, I still, there's times I just don't get it. It's so obvious. It's so, it's so rooted here. And I still struggle at times. I still find my feet flailing. Except, did you see what Mark says? He says, their hearts were shown to be hardened. Why? Because they didn't get it about the loaves. The loaves, meaning that miracle of the feeding of 5,000. Jesus didn't do that just so that he would impress them. He didn't do that just because people were hungry and they needed food. He did it primarily to show them who he is and that he has come to be the only one who could fully satisfy. He came to reveal that he is the bread. And now this miracle right after of walking on water is meant to point back to that. Jesus sees as only God can see. And Jesus walks as only God can walk. And Jesus talks as only Jesus can talk, as only God can talk. And in doing all three, he's showing these men he can be trusted. So here's how we're going to close. Two applications. The first is from the verses we just read. Jesus is in the boat. Jesus is in the boat. Notice he doesn't just shout from shore and tell them what they need to do to get out. He doesn't even calm the winds from shore. He goes to them intentionally and he gets in the boat. Church, he is not removed from your life. Pastor Jeff said it last week, he has not abandoned you. He's not just a lifeline that we can give him a call if things are really out of hand. He's there. The Bible tells us that when Jesus ascended to heaven following his resurrection, he, he commissioned these very disciples to go and make disciples. And he said, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ indwells all believers. We are united with Jesus right now. He's in the boat. There's two ways we can view the relationship between Jesus and suffering. Jesus and the storms of life, if you will. Um, one is wrong and destructive, and the other is right and assuring. And so we need to get this right. The way that is wrong is, is, is a way to believe in Jesus that he's going to keep you from all the storms in life. 
And he'll be like the ultimate helicopter parent. And he will steer you away from anything bad if only we believe enough. If only if we truly have faith, then we will be freed from hardship and released from it. Not only is that nowhere in the Bible, that will crush you over time. And you will sink because the moment you do face hardship, you're either going to resent God for not keeping you from it or resent yourself for thinking you didn't have good enough faith. The second view is that Jesus does not keep you from suffering. He doesn't promise to make everything great all the time, but rather he promises to never abandon you in the midst of your suffering. John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. It is possible to go through a storm in life and simultaneously experience the assurance and peace of a Savior who gets in the boat, who holds you close and says, I'm right here. It's okay. Don't be afraid. Have the second view. Last application. And to see that, we're going to finish the last couple verses of chapter 6. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched, as touched it were made well. Here's how we're going to close tying in with how we started, why does Jesus do what he does? Why does he travel around and perform mighty miracles? Why does he draw crowds and teach them? And why will he one day go to the cross and lay his life down willingly? Church, let's start with why. The gospel writers share about the person and work of Christ so that you may believe. John said that explicitly in John 21. Mark shows it all throughout his gospel. He comes so that we might have faith in him. Everything he does flows from his primary desire for you to not just be amazed by him, to not just be impressed by him, to not just try and live like him, but that so you may believe. To believe is not just to agree that he lived It's not just to agree that he probably did some pretty epic things in his time. To believe is not to just say he motivates me to live better and be a good person. To believe is to see him as the I am. To believe is to see Jesus as God. And that we will only be saved by being forgiven of our sin and brokenness through him. Through his perfect life. Through his death on the cross. And through his victory over the grave. This is the overarching point of why there are miracles all throughout the first half of Mark. Not to just tell you what he did. Not just to say how he did these things. He came to compel a response. He came so that you may see Jesus in all his glory and so that you will believe in him and not just yourself. Do you see Jesus passing by? Do you hear Jesus saying, I am? 
you understand why he came. Believe in him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that ancient truth would fall afresh on this church this morning. We thank you that from your one word, it is clear enough to be understood by kindergartners. And it's powerful to be explored by even the most mature in the faith. Father, let this ancient truth fall afresh on us. Let it lead to increased faith in you and you alone. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.